Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the international affairs, foreign policy, and global development community, and world news aficionados of all stripes. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. My guest today, Ban Ki-moon, served as the 8th Secretary General of the United Nations from 2007 through 2016. He is out with a new memoir titled Resolved, Uniting Nations in a Divided World. The book gives his first-person account as the leader of the United Nations who navigates complex crises around the world. This includes Syria, Myanmar, Israel and Palestine, the West Africa Ebola outbreak, and much, much more. He also offers his perspective and a behind-the-scenes account of some key UN successes during his tenure, including the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement and the advent of the Sustainable Development Goals. I do highly recommend the book. It really offers a global tour of some key past and current diplomatic crises. I also tell this to Bond during our conversation, but the book is refreshingly candid. I covered Bond as a journalist while he was secretary general, and he had a very well-earned reputation for being tight-lipped and just diplomatic all the time, uh, rarely ever breaching protocol. But the book at times is very undiplomatic and in very interesting ways. We cover quite a bit of ground in this interview, including his perspective on what the COVID crisis revealed about the strengths and weaknesses of the United Nations, what can be done to bolster multilateralism today, his frustrations with the Security Council, and what advice he might offer to his successor, Antonio Guterres. And we do spend a good deal of time talking about climate change diplomacy, which was Bond's signature issue as Secretary General. And before we get to my conversation with Ban Ki-moon, I do want to plug another book titled For the Love of Hong Kong, a memoir from my city under siege by Hannah Mehan Davis. This is the debut publication from Global Dispatches that tells the story of Hong Kong's rapid descent into authoritarian rule as told from the perspective of a young Hong Konger who was born into the pro-democracy movement. And as I record this, the book is currently a top new release on Amazon. I would love to keep up that momentum and encourage you all to buy a copy and share it with friends and colleagues. I'll post a link to the book in the show notes. You can also find it by visiting globaldispatches.org. And now here is my conversation with former United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. 
Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Congratulations to you on the book. I highly recommend it for anyone who's interested in the United Nations and international affairs. It's an excellent read and I think a useful addition to the historic record. So thank you for writing it. Well, uh, it is me who should thank you and for the audience to listen to my uh, stories. Uh, If I may say just uh, half a minute uh, why I have uh, written this book is that Uh, This is about my life story and my philosophy for our future. I hope my memoir resolved uniting the nations in a divided world will spread my ideas and stories uh, to the wide audience that is responsible for the world today and tomorrow. I will, I just humbly wish that Uh, it will inspire possibility, uh, spark actions, and improve uh, cooperation, and ultimately encourage people around the world to become a global citizens. I, th- I, I have been emphasizing the importance of uh, global citizenship, particularly for the among the world political leaders and business leaders. That is my main and humble purpose. Of yes. writing this book. Uh, this is my first ever book uh, written in my uh, 76 uh, uh-huh. years of life history. Well, I should just say, as a journalist who covered you for 10 years, I was just very pleasantly surprised with how candid you were in the course of the book. You know, at many times during reading the book, I almost laughed out loud to myself when you would say something that you would never have uttered as secretary general or have gotten away with. So uh, again, thank you for writing a a candid book. And I'd like to just kick off this conversation by asking you to reflect on the United Nations response to COVID. This is arguably the single greatest shock to the international system since the advent of the UN since World War II. And I'm curious to learn from you what this moment revealed to you about the UN system. And let's start with strengths. What did COVID show you about the value of the UN in a global crisis like this? Coronavirus has, in fact, uh, totally locked down the whole of our society. Never in the history, even during the Second World War, we have Uh, not, not ne- we, we were never been such a completely lockdown all throughout the world. Uh, almost 220 countries, including 193 UN member states, are completely affected. Why is it so? Because we have been neglecting this climate action. This has a very close relationship because we have been neglecting and abusing the privilege which has been given by our nature. But what about the United Nations? UN should have been working much more in close cooperation among the agencies. Now it has been given only to WHO. Then United States on the present, Trump has withdrawn mm-hmm. criticizing the WHO and other agencies. 
So it was morally wrong and it was politically unwise. Look at the case of Ebola in 2014, when in Ebola just spread to Western African countries, I had a very close relationship cooperation with WHO Director General Margaret Chen. And we have mobilized all, all the agencies, all the countries together. Mm-hmm. Now, it has been given to just the WHO and WHO has been very much um, isolated because U.S. has withdrawn and criticizing. For the first time in history of the United Nations during my time in 2014, United Nations has established UNMIR, United Nations Ebola Emergency Response Mission. Under this UNMIR system uh, led by me, and uh, working very closely with the U.S. President uh, Obama and WHO, World Bank, and IMF. We have been really mobilizing all tools, mm-hmm. agencies of the United Nations. With that, uh, we were able to uh, rapidly eradicate uh, Ebola, uh, which swept uh, Liberia, uh, Sierra Leone, and Guinea at the time. This was the one lesson which we have to uh, do, we should have done. I telephoned to uh, Tedros, uh, Director General of WHO at the beginning of this uh, March last year. Why don't you uh, mobilize a whole United Nations system? This is one lesson which we have to learn. Yes, I, I remember in, in your book, you, you discussed that phone call you had with Dr. Tedros urging him to, to mobilize all the UN agencies and not just let the burden of COVID fall exclusively on the shoulders of the World Health Organization. Um, your answer to that question uh, about COVID and the UN leads nicely to my next question, which is about multilateralism in the world today. You know, these last few years have been very challenging times for multilateralism with, among other things, the previous U.S. administration, as you just cited, withdrawing from key multilateral agencies. I've had a former diplomat uh, on the show before who likened uh, multilateralism to a muscle and needs to be used or it will weaken and atrophy. So what today can be done to more robustly strengthen multilateralism? In this time of crisis, no country, however powerful or resourceful, can handle all this uh, global crisis which we are facing. And that is a lesson, and that's the importance of multilateralism. United Nations is the symbol and backbone of the multilateralism. So UN should be empowered fully and much more with the necessary resources and political support by the member states. Now, particularly during the time of President Trump of the United States, multilateralism became in disarray. US, which has been the champion in uh, human rights, withdrew from the Human Rights Council. In fact, Human Rights Council was created as a reform measure at the strong request of uh, United States in 2006. From U- Human Rights Commission was 
made into Human Rights Council. Mm -hmm. Then they withdrew from JCPOA, they withdrew from WHO, and they have been taking the policy of America first. That leadership missing in the global uh, global uh, diplomacy has made the multilateralism in disarray. Everybody, every country was going for themselves. That is why we are suffering from this um, uh, corona uh, pandemic. No one will be safe and secured until everyone is safe and supported. That is the hard lessons which we have learned uh, this time. I am very uh, uh, pleased to see President Joe Biden as his uh, first presidential act to return to return to uh, uh, Paris Climate Change Agreement, and also uh, he is leading try to mobilize uh, multilateral uh, forces. I sincerely hope that the G7 summit, uh, which will be held in, in a few days in the uh, United Kingdom, will really be an occasion where the biggest and richest countries in the world will really be united and try to do maximum they could do. Uh, first things, I think they should save the lives of uh, human, human beings around the world, particularly those countries in the uh, de developing world. They are helpless uh, to take care of themselves. Uh, therefore, I joined um, many world leaders, former world leaders, 230 uh, world leaders, and that uh, G7 leaders. Uh, a letter of appeal to G7 leaders that they should really uh, mobilize the necessary funding, at least uh, more than $40 billion to uh, provide vaccines um, and all this medical equipment, uh, you know, resuscitate the economy. So they have uh, political and moral responsibility. That is the importance of G7. Now that uh, multilateralism is now coming back, coming back. At the same time, we really hope that uh, those countries like G20, they should be fully united to address this uh, current crisis. That's my sincere hope as former Secretary General. So, I mean, is it your sense that uniting the G20 specifically around a common response to the coronavirus pandemic, which is now, you know, well into its uh, second year, um, that is that that those actions can be harnessed to strengthen multilateralism more broadly? Yes. Now, WHO has initiated. Act A, ACTA, Access mm -hmm. to COVID-19 Pools Accelerator. That is a groundbreaking global collaboration initiated for development, production, and equitable access to COVID-19 test, treatment, and vaccines. Again, I strongly urge that G7 mm -hmm. leaders in Cornwall, United Kingdom, will decide to provide the necessary financial and technological support for the developing countries. Another very important, serious, urgent issue is climate change. Mm -hmm. I am urging G7 leaders to decide and make a roadmap 
how they are going to mobilize $100 billion they have promised in Paris Agreement to provide, the, first of all, financial assistance, science and technological assistance to many vulnerable countries, small island developing countries, and other, most of the developing countries. They are the ones who have been hit worst and most without con having contributed not much. It is the industrialized countries who have contribute, contributed most of the greenhouse gas emissions, which have created this uh, current climate uh, crisis. And therefore, they have, again, moral and political responsibility. So we are speaking uh, just a few months ahead of a major climate uh, agreement, climate summit in Glasgow, uh, which is built upon the Paris Agreement that you devote a lot of time in your book to, to discussing and how the Paris Agreement came to be. What advice might you give your successor, uh, Antonio Guterres, right now in the lead up to this crucial climate summit that is intended to increase the ambition and the scale of national contributions, what each country will do uh, to confront the climate crisis? Yeah, first of all, I'm very uh, happy that to, to see that uh, my uh, successor, Antonio Guterres, has been uh, recommended by the Security Council unanimously mm -hmm. for a second term. So he will be uh, soon uh, appointed for second term. So he has a renewed uh, authority and mandate. And therefore, I hope uh, he will closely coordinate and cooperate and exercise his uh, leadership uh, as a Secretary General to make sure that this uh, forthcoming COP26 uh, in Glasgow will be a Great success. Now, this is going to be 26. My experience is that each and every cup has its own strengths and weaknesses. In some cups, we made uh, considerable progress. In some cups, not much, very weak, uh, sometimes very much a division. But United Kingdom, as a member of G7, and they have been one of the strong supporters on climate, uh, cri climate action. Uh, therefore, uh, I really hope that uh, we will know that the curve is bending to a sustainable future of less than 1.5 degrees Celsius above warming, that the biggest emitters, they are the biggest emitters, will have made ambitious uh, commitment to cut emissions by more than 50% in their nationally determined contributions. That's and your definition I, of success at, at, at this coming yeah, conference of course, of another, another, as I said already, $100 billion to help those um, small island and developing countries mm -hmm. in their mitigation and adaptation efforts. Without every country, all the countries on board, nobody will be safe from this uh, climate uh, crisis. That is what I'd like to uh, emphasize. I'd like to also hope the language will have changed from build back better after COVID-19 to building forward with uh, equality, justice, and sustainability, hmm. leaving no one behind. With that in mind, I do hope that this COP 
will be more inclusive than any of the previous cups. While that may be challenging given the pandemic, now more than ever, it is uh, more important than ever that those voices from the, I'm sorry. No, I love the passion. This is what I was used to when when seeing you as Secretary General. And the one issue in which you were most passionate was always climate from an early stage too, before it was fashionable. So we have to work for Global South and also young generation who will be living in this uh, in this world uh, in this world so they should be all present and at the forefront mm-hmm. it's not only right thing to do to put those most at risk mm-hmm. at the center of discussion but it's also shown to be more effective to climate outcomes there should be a firm commitment for net zero net zero carbon neutrality by 20 50, like uh, most uh, important countries, the like United States, uh, European Union, Japan, Korea have made it a uh, firm commitment. China even made a commitment for net, uh, net zero by uh, 2060. We can understand the mag- magnanimity and size of uh, China's uh, challenges. 2060 was welcomed by uh, world, world leaders. So this is my strong message, strong message. So throughout your book and in your answer to me just now, you reaffirm and you you discuss throughout that global problems like climate change require global solutions. One of the key global problems today is rising authoritarianism and democratic decline. And this is a global problem. No region is immune. This is happening everywhere around the world. But is this the kind of problem that has a global solution? You know, is there a multilateralist answer to the challenge of rising authoritarianism? Now, in this 21st century, when uh, democracy and the human rights and justice and all these important principles enshrined in the Charter of the United Nations should have been much more widely disseminated and practiced. But as we are entering into, as we have already entered into 21st century, where we have full use of science and technology and much better uh, tools to make our life much more prosperous and convenient. But when it comes to political scene, there are more and more people are becoming more tall, you know, like uh, abusing their rights as mandated by their own people. This is because the role of the United Nations, particularly the Security Council, is not exercising their duty and their right enshrined in the Charter of the United Nations because of the division of the Security Council. What have they done for the case of Syria? It's already 10 years, exactly 10 years since 2011, now 2021. Mm. 6.6 million people from Syria have left, fled their country, become refugees. And the remaining all people are now living under extremely difficult economic situation because Syria Security Council has not been able to take any action 
even humanitarian actions have been vetoed by some of the prominent members of the Security Council. So that is what we have been seeing. This is not justice. This is not right. That is why people are crying out for the reform of the Security Council. Now, again, there are many regional blocks, regional groups, like League of Arab States, African Union, ASEAN, or American OAS, et cetera, et cetera. These regional groups should be also empowered. They should, they should do much more engaged in their regional issues, but mostly they are divided. Mostly they are divided. That is a very sad uh, phenomenon at, at this time. Uh, as a Secretary General, I have been really meeting, engaging with each and every leader, whether they are democratic or undemocratic. But I have been really urging them that you should work for their own people. Mm. It's not right. It's not justice. Justice will prevail. You may you may just go like this way. The justice will prevail, if not now, tomorrow. If not tomorrow, soon, surely in the very near future. This is why we have established the ICC, International Criminal Court. And, but because of the division again for the Security Council, Security Council is not able to recommend to indict those responsible mm -hmm. people to ICC. Going forward, as you mentioned earlier, you know, we're speaking just uh, as your successor, Antonio Guterres, was recommended by the Security Council, despite the divisions that you just articulated, for another five-year term. Over the course of the next five years, what will you be looking towards to suggest to you uh, whether or not the United Nations is succeeding or failing in living up to its ideals? United Nations should be successful, must be successful. That's the only the national, uh, international organization created by whole world's people. This is a place where almost all the nations, small and big, powerful or weak or rich and poor. So this is the only forum where we can we can really discuss a whole world's problem. We have so many uh, uh, subsidiary organizations. We have so many, at least 16 specialized agencies where each and every issues which we are now going through experiencing in this world, including climate and human rights and development can be discussed. Again, during my time in 2015, the United Nations has presented two most ambitious, most far-reaching visions. That is a climate change agreement, Paris climate change agreement, and also 17 goals with the sustainable development goals. 17 goals cover each and every aspect of human lives and our nature. If we really uh, implement all these 17 goals by 2030, there will be, uh, nobody will suffer from abject poverty, nobody will suffer from uh, injustice, um, uh, human rights issues, men and women, and our 
our world's people will be able to live harmoniously with our nature. That is the vision. I think that's the most far-reaching, most ambitious and far-reaching vision the United Nations has been presented. Those two visions must be held and implemented with the wholehearted support and participation of all the countries. Well, Mr. Secretary General, thank you so much for your time and uh, for your passion on on these issues. And again, uh, the book is is a wonderful tour around the world. It's a very valuable uh, addition to anyone who wants to learn more about the United Nations and international affairs and uh, about you. It's, it's a great personal story as well. So thank you. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Ban Ki-moon. That was great. And his book is out this June from Columbia University Press. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. We publish two episodes like this every week, focusing on topics of importance to the global affairs community. If you have not already done so, please hit the subscribe button in your podcast listening app. And if you are a regular listener and you have a suggestion for me of people you'd like me to interview or topics you'd like me to cover, please hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg, or you can send me an email using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Thank you all. See you next time. Bye. Thank you.